0: Welcome to the Craft Beer Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder, and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. My guest on the podcast this week in sunny Florida is Doug Dozark, the uh, owner and head brewer for Cycle Brewing. Welcome to the podcast, Doug. Oh, Thanks for having me. Uh, you know, it was a fun drive over from Orlando this morning. I grew up in Orlando. Oh, you, you're shaking your head, but uh, I'll tell you, I grew up in... Uh, and it, we're doing this in the week of Christmas yep. Every Christmas day Through my entire childhood We would open our presents in uh, Winter Park Just north of Orlando uh, On Christmas morning And then we'd hop in the car And drive over to St. Pete uh, To visit my grandparents For the next part of Christmas Oh, Lord And so it just felt like a, Like a nostalgic trip To, to sit in traffic on I high four Jeez,
1: <laughs> <She's> like nostalgia <laughs> Like getting bamboo shoots under your fingernails Oh, Oof.
0: oh <laughs> Yeah, so so we're here we're here in Saint Petersburg, Florida. We're going to talk to Doug about uh, uh, brewing, specifically uh, some of the the large portion of what they brew here at Cycle, which is barrel aged imperial stouts. Um, looking forward to digging into that. Some of their thoughts on pasteurization, which they've kind of uh, led the way on in those kinds of in that style of beer. And we're going to talk about a few other things along the way because they are making hazy IPAs and canning and uh, mm-hmm. doing all other sorts of fun things here at Cycle Brewing. Uh, before we get into that, as the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling, GD Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, and dedication to their customers' craft. GD is committed to cold, whether you operate a brew pub or large scale production brewery. Contact GD Chillers today at 1 800 555 0973. Or reach out online at gdchillers.com. Mention this podcast and receive up to $1,000 worth of glycol with the purchase of any new GD chiller. Also, Tavor is the tastiest way to explore the world from the comfort of your home. Select delicious craft beers on the Tavor app that you cannot find in your area and get them delivered right to your door. It's not at the Beer of the Month club where you end up with duds you have to give to your grandpa. Download the free Tavor app today and get $10 in beer money with code BREWING. And hey, if you're a Tavor user, you might even be able to buy some uh, some beer from Cycle right Absolutely. here. Huh? <laughs> so Doug, uh, walk me through a little bit of your brewing history, how you got to this place today, how you uh, uh, ended up founding Cycle, and how you uh, ended up, uh, here we are, in a production kind of brewery uh, down the street from the original brewery uh, in downtown St. Pete. Um, what got you here? Um, uh, this,
1: uh, this all started with a kid who graduated from college and had a degree in studio art, um, and no plans to do anything with that other than have the degree. So getting a job, um, worked at UPS and then my f- parents who are PhDs said they were tired of teaching. Let's open a restaurant. Great plan. Um, we did, uh, the three of us that was called Peg's Cantina and that was where after five years of starting a restaurant, which was very small, we uh, became a brew pub and started brewing and selling the beer uh, in March of 2009, and that was at the same time I began volunteering at Cigar City Brewing in Tampa, which was also just getting started in March of 2009, and I worked simultaneously. I had no family, no kids, so it was seven days a week, five days at Cigar City, Saturday, Sunday at Peg's for years it seemed like um eventually i was hired full-time there and worked with wayne um, brewing uh, commercially and at pegs i was writing my own recipes brewing technically commercially but it was five gallons and then we <laughs> moved all the way up to a barrel at a time wow. and then yeah we actually ran the one barrel brew house to fill seven barrel fermenters for what should have been three or four months turned into almost 18 months Um, imperial stout was a three-day process on that it was 18 mashes and six boils over three days to fill one seven barrel tank Uh, truly a labor of love there
0: and and guys are bragging about 36 hour boils today i mean they're not nearly putting in what you put in on that
1: no and honestly a lot of that memory is kind of faded i mean i I know we did that but i don't i mean i did that it was just me for a long time um and then we but you've put that bad memory out of your head it wasn't a bad memory yeah those were uh, those were pure times i had the time i had really no constraints i could do anything i wanted at any time of day um and i did and i and it was great and that was what got uh you know imperial stout was one of the third i think it was the third recipe i ever wrote and it's became rare dos after going into some palm ridge reserve barrels and i've never that's one recipe i've never tweaked i've probably brewed over a thousand different IPAs, but and I've brewed different imperial stouts since, but we've kept Rare Dos, Rare Dos. I mean, that's it has been. I was incredibly lucky to, to come up with that. And so that
0: recipe did not change from the first time you brewed it.
1: Nope. Really? Nope. I mean, this, the the systems have changed, and we've had to. I mean, you have to make adjustments anytime, sure. sure but sure. no, the the recipe is the grains are identical. The percentages might be shifted a little just to hit scale and to hit yeah. gravity. Uh, I know our gravities have shifted a little bit because we get uh, switching to conical tanks. We got better attenuation than we did in, say, a bucket. Right. Um, but really, it was about hitting. It really came down to hitting numbers on the back end, not so much worried about gravity on going yeah. into the tank.
0: You know, I find now the the conventional wisdom, of course, is they're brewing is a system that size. It really doesn't make economic sense, and it's hard to make a business successful brewing at that kind of scale. The flip side of it, you know, uh, as we had uh, uh, Andrew uh, and Kai from uh, Aslan on the podcast, they were you know, talking about how as they brewed on two barrel batches as they got started, you know, it was commercial suicide. But what they learned through that process of brewing a lot. Um, and being able to tweak instantly and, you know, correct is that, you know, they were able to kind of iterate very, very quickly, obviously much more quickly than if you're brewing 15 barrel batches at that scale. But it sounds like that iterative thing didn't have to, didn't need to happen for you on the stout side. Not on stouts,
1: um, on other beers for sure. I mean, I yeah. think in our first year I did eight, 800 batches full year. Um, that was m- probably seven months of that was five gallon batches. So I was doing five or six a weekend, Ouch. Um, sometimes more. And then once we got up to the barrel size, it, you know, I brewed less or fewer batches, but um, it was still, I think we did, I restarted the counter so many times. I don't, I don't even remember, but I know we did well over, well over 1,500 batches before we got the seven barrel tanks. And that was, I mean, it was commercial beer. We sold it. We had our tap room. We had a brand, but the brand was Peg's Cantina and Brew Pub and that was once we grew beyond just selling it on site the that was where it really became apparent that cycle yeah. brewing really a brand which is what cycle brewing is needed to be spawned um, because no one's going to go to a place and oh I want peg's cantina and brew pub's dancing cody ip <laughs> like that's w- <laughs> sure, way sure. too much so we we simplified it and um uh, and it was also a way because for me to get out of the family restaurant business, right? And then it became my own. I got married, and so it was mine and my wife's thing to get Cycle Brewing going. And that's where Cycle as a brand, we were in distribution actually for over a year before we opened the tap room. Hmm. So Cycle existed for a year, and then we got the tap room open on a shoestring budget. Thanks BP for the oil spill; that settlement <laughs> money really got us going. Uh, that was all we had. Um, and it it, it still kind of shows. It's a little sad how uh, pathetic our tap room is compared to what it. I, I feel like our our image is.
0: Doug, the proper word is authentic. Authentic. It's authentic. I've okay. been,
1: I've been called that uh, a few times. I've not always gotten a positive connotation with that, but uh, yeah, no, it's. It's not pathetic. It's just small. And when you look around at what other breweries have done, and you know their tap rooms, and they, you know, they had investors and they built this beautiful facility and this beautiful tap room, and it's like we had no money. Our cooler still is. I think we paid three thousand dollars for it, and some guy with like four teeth put it together, and it still works. I mean, it does work. It's very functional, but it is not the. Uh, it is not the image that I think our our beer really. I think we have a disconnect there. I think we probably always will.
0: So let's talk a little bit about the beer then. Sure. I guess before we do that, you know, you've now, you have a separate production facility. You have a small, and and, uh, I think when I first visited about five years ago in 2014, you were really brewing out of that. Little, you know, tiny tap sure. room that had some very small fermenters in the yep. back there and a, and a uh, minuscule brew system. I probably got pictures of it somewhere yeah. on the computer. but uh,
1: It hasn't changed much. Yeah. Um, we, yeah, it's still four seven-barrel tanks. We had It's an identical setup to what we were running at Pegs, okay. which we were did get a seven-barrel brew house eventually. It took a very long time. Somebody stole our money in California and never built the brew house. That was a lesson learned. So eventually we did get a seven- barrel brew house at both locations with four seven barrel tanks, and we do still brew downtown at the yeah. tap room. Actually, we're legally required to. Um, state of Florida has some rules regarding tiers and production, and so we have to maintain that as a production facility and it's nice to just do smaller batches that will you know just be on site, something that would never go into distro anyway, and sure, you know you want to maintain some freshness so you don't want 15 barrels of an IPA that is going to take you three months to sell
0: right now that sounds like a a nice scale for those kinds of one-offs that people will pop in just so they can check that single thing into untapped that doesn't exist anywhere else sure (laughs) yeah so here at the production brewery uh, you know as we were walking around the brew house earlier you were you were talking to me about how you've built this brew house Mm -hmm. specifically uh in order to brew stouts or specifically so that you have the capability to brew big imperial stouts talk to me a little bit about that kind of design process and thought behind that
1: uh, well, that started, um, really, the, the necessity for that came from early, the early days. I think multiple mashing was something that I picked up at Cigar City. Um, so we were just, I think we ended up doing three mashes for Marshall Zukov's at Cigar City. And watching that process and just seeing the way that time worked out, and then we were doing the same thing because I, I, there was sort of a standard scale for a brew house, like right. your mash ton is this size for this size kettle. But that scale didn't translate into Imperial Stout or trying to make 30 plus Play Doh beer. It just, right. there wasn't, they didn't correlate in my mind very well. and But they did other beers. So I thought looking ahead at what our plans, our focus is, what we do the best, um, or at least what the consumer feels we do the best, is uh, Imperial Stouts. That's what we're known for. So I thought we should, when it came time to Upgrade and invest in the brew house. I basically I measured the space where it would go and said, build the mash tun to maximize this space, just as big as it can be. I need it to be only on one side of the trench drain, but it can be against the wall. So that's how that's the diameter I want on this, and I'll figure out the rest. And they were very reluctant. This was Metalcraft. This is probably one of the last uh, brew houses Metalcraft actually finished. did not have any indication that what was going to happen with them but um we we got our brew house on time and they've been great uh, the people who used to work there have still been great but uh yeah i just said do this and I, well that doesn't the platform is going to be crooked and lopsided i was like that doesn't this isn't a showpiece. I'm not looking for symmetry. I'm looking for functionality here. This is what I want to be able to do. Oh, well, you're not going to be able to brew your small beers. I said, I'll solve that problem. <laughs> I can solve that problem. Right, right. What I can't do is continue to have Imperial Stout be 14-hour days. I just, I don't want to staff for that. I don't need to staff for that if I could just get this brew house the way I want it. And uh, eventually they, they came around, and so we ended up with uh, – I believe our mash tun is 46 barrels capacity and then our it's a 15 barrel brew house still so our we can but our kettle goes up to 24 barrels. So if we want to lauter more and boil down for something stupid like 24 to 48 hour boils just cuz I don't know why people do that but whatever good enough we could still do that. We could. We yeah. and actually that was one of our beers I I made a mistake on. I did not throw the, I was going to rinse the mash tun and the way the piping is set up, you could, it was also the same uh, port on the panel that would go to fill the kettle, and I ended up basically over into the kettle by about three barrels, I was doing a half batch, so I had like twelve and a half barrels in the kettle, and the stated max capacity on the tank was eight and a half. And so, yeah, we boiled nine hours that day. Just, And it wasn't because I wanted to hit gravity. It was I just wanted to fit in the tank. So I feel like if I could get down to, like, nine and a half because I'm going to lose at least a barrel to true, it'll fit. And so I just let it roll. I even left for a, a couple hours because my daughter was singing at some Christmas pageant. And so I left and came back, and it was just boiling away. And we hit 41 Play-Doh on that beer, which did ferment. yeah. Yes. Uh, to, uh, we never measured how low it got because the hydrometer goes to like 26 and a half or 25 <laughs> and a half, whatever it is. And yeah, it, it didn't quite, it's not, it didn't get that low. Yeah, It, it did attenuate to some degree. Um, and the beer, we ended up blending it. Uh, it was it was pretty nice blending stock that went into, I believe that was actually in the third rare scoop. It was one of the scoops we ended up running that into because that beer can have as much sweetness as you could possibly
0: ever want, and and then some, and people still love it. Uh, before we talk a little bit more, and I'd love to talk about some of the kind of fundamentals of, of how you you know build this in, uh, imperial stout recipe, uh, before we do that, uh, whether you're a full-scale production brewery, a tap room, or a home brewer striving for the ultimate setup, October Can Seamers has the small-scale canning solution. They've proven the breweries increase revenue through to-go sales with October Can Seamers, and everyone loves to sell more beer. You're only a few clicks away from selling more beer. Just head over to octoberdesign.com slash podcast. That's October with a K and use offer code Jamie. That's J-A-M-I-E to save $50 on any can seamer or purchase. Also balancing barley and hops is your expertise. And for Clarion lubricants, food grade lubricants is theirs. The team at Clarion knows that when it comes to making great beer, you're the expert. And when it comes to supplying food grade lubricants backed by service oriented professionals, they're the experts. Clarion will work with you to create an efficient lubrication program that helps protect your brewery. To speak with an expert, dial 1-855-MY-CLARION. That's 855-692-5274 or visit clarionlubricants.com. Clarion Lubricants, the experts that experts trust. So we've talked now about, you know, how you commercially brew this stout. Let's talk a little bit about the recipe design and how you envision this. Uh, you know, as I look at where Imperial Stout has gone over the last nine or 10 years. It has taken some some significant turns, even in the last Definitely. five. Yes. Uh, it says something that you've got a recipe that you're still happy with 10 years later. Yep. Um, and that even with more tools at your disposal in terms of ingredients and whatnot, uh, as you've developed in your professional career and operating this brewery over the last decade, uh, you have now a lot more uh, at, you know tools at your disposal. Um, talk to me a little bit about how you initially envisioned that and and uh, how you made some of the ingredient, and uh, you know, kind of process choices around that.
1: Oh, well, the first—it's uh, been a long time since uh, writing that first out. But I, I uh, some of it was um, based on a, fa- a failure of a, a porter recipe that I wrote. Um, but there were some grains that I used that I really liked, um, and one grain that I encountered at Cigar City that I—I I don't know if Wayne actually likes or not, but is uh Brees special roast. Um, so that I wanted to use the special roast. Um, and then it came down to basically creating a caramel backbone and then kind of adding the chocolate elements on top. And I believe the first recipes incorporated or the first batches incorporated almost no roasted barley. And since then, um, that is one thing that I think I've I've adjusted a little bit, but it's still an incredibly low amount um, for a, a an imperial stout. I know, looking at because and roasted barley is a big thing in I would say the stouts from ten years ago because you could get that I uh, use that to get a really dark head, and so you wouldn't, right. and so you wanted an aggressive sort of mean looking stout. I mean, Dark Lord was really coming on strong. It was uh, two thousand nine. I guess that was really kind of that's old was, Rasputin uh, territory. Uh, still yeah, it's kind of it. Kind of mm-hmm. almost it. Probably peaked in oh nine really, and that was the first year that people really, I guess, more brewers that I talked to anyway were more right. upset with how sweet it was and how um, that soy sauce that it became known for, at least in in people that I talked to. I I rarely, I think, I've had two Dark Lords ever. But just hearing that was the one that people were trading for. They had the big event that was right, Dark Lord right. was the Imperial Stout of fame in two thousand eight and nine, when I was getting into craft beer and or brewing, and <clears throat> I didn't like
0: that. So we can trace back some of this insanity about standing in lines for special releases to that. Uh...
1: As far as I know, yeah. and from my experience, when I really got into it, which is I'm a lot later than some people, but Dark right, Lord was right. it. That was the one. Yeah, you had to go there, and you had to have that one. And all uh, imperial stouts were judged based on that. And it was had the highest trade value, and people were paying twenty dollars a bottle. And oh, you know the <laughs> wax and the different wax colors, like right. that. they really. Yeah. And I I've not heard much about it lately, but I I mean they really pioneered a lot of innovative yeah. things with beer releases. I would right. say, um, even if you know imperial stout for them has gotten a little more. It's probably, it's just a little more stagnant for them. Yeah. Um, they've, they've still got some following. Their event is, I'm sure, still a fabulous time, but it's not, there's just so many other ones now. Sure, And it's, sure. and that's the change that I think we've seen. And a lot of that, so for, for me, the recipe was, you know, what I liked about Imperial Stouts was, or, you know, really just big, dark beers. I wanted, like, milk chocolatey. I wanted, I didn't want, like, acrid roast. I didn't want that. I didn't care if it had the dark head. I wanted it to be something that was, I thought those were some of the finer points of that you could create with just grain out of, you know, you think, thinking about it, it's like, you know, a Hershey chocolate bar. There's no barley in that. But people love that. Right. And the fact that you could take barley and create a lot of those flavors was just fantastic to me. Yeah. And so that's where my recipes really, they come after that that's that side. And so we, for the long, for a long time, I feel like we probably were one of the sweetest stouts out there, which, you know, we're probably not even close anymore. Yeah. Um, what do
0: you, what do you target for, uh, you know, starting gravity and a finishing gravity? <laughs> uh,
1: interestingly, the first uh, rare dos and for the longest time, rare dos was probably only about 7%. Um, hmm. It really wasn't that big, but it tasted big because it would finish between 10 and 12 Play Doh. But we'd only start at, some of the biggest batches were like 28. It was just hard to go higher. Like, yeah, And we were, there was no sugar additions in the kettle. Um, that was something Wayne, that I got from Wayne and just kind of stuck with me for a long time was do it with the grain. Yeah. Make it with the grain. Yeah. And, I, and we've gotten away from that. Not entirely, but we we try to maximize with the grain, but we're not afraid of sugar anymore. And for a long time we were. Um and, and there's something to be said, but it was really more of a, you know, pride macho thing to say you did it with the grain. It sure, didn't, sure, It didn't make a better product necessarily. It was just – and at that point, I was like, well, what are we doing then? Nobody knows or cares that we're doing it with just the mash and boil time. Um, so we, we've gotten away from that.
0: Ironically, though, I mean, you know, whether you thought about it or not, it has – you know, generally when you're doing it with grain, you're creating, you know – more unfermentables as sure. well, and you create more body and you know to that kind of thing, and you're sure create this thicker thing versus you know adding sugar in there, which will ultimately it give depends on the sugar. Oh, okay, it depends on there let's are let's talk about that a little so bit. So
1: many sugars out there, yeah. Um, yeah, we've experimented a lot because we've done um two or three uh sort of friends that are starting breweries that may have made a name for themselves in the gray legal area of home brews that people trade for. <laughs>
0: okay. um,
1: but there are stouts, and they're uh, somewhat local, and so we would brew with them. Uh, they, I would offer to, and we've, we're still open to it, but it was, come here, we have a warehouse, we have a great facility, and now that um, we don't brew for distribution here anymore, we have the time to where we can, you can come here, Brew imperial stouts, stick it in barrels. And then, if you're when your facility is open, you're not starting from zero, you have your beer in barrels. And in doing some of that, the uh, amount of sugars that we have been introduced to from some of those folks has been I think we've we will probably stock eight different sugars now, nine between syrups and powdered sugar. Uh it it really you can do a lot with sugar. I don't think it lends it doesn't have the depth from sure. the sugar created in a mash. So I don't think it's a substitute. If you're if you end up in the kettle at twenty-two, you're not going to thirty two with sugar and making a great product. It's just your your ratio you can't I don't think you could pack enough flavor and know how to split that out with sugar to get to that gravity and make a quality product. And on top of that, some of the sugars that will give you a thicker body are not fermentable are artificial sweeteners. Oh, I mean, maltodextrin, oh, it's maltodextrin. It's sweet and low. It's, it's an artificial sweetener, which the reason it has no calories is because it doesn't digest, also doesn't ferment, but it, it also has a distinct flavor. And so you can add body, but at some point you taste the artificial sweetener. Like, it's sweet, and it's not off-putting, but you start to just pick out this – I don't know. To me, it tastes inauthentic. It tastes fake. It's, right. it's not. I mean, it's it's just a tool. Right. But it, it's, it changes what you're making. And so for me, sugar is not – it's not a substitute for a quality brewing process with thought and care and time invested in some of the more traditional brewing aspects. But it can – you can, you can almost layer sugar in to create what you're looking for, like molasses. If you use a little bit of molasses, you can pull just enough molasses into the flavor that it, it gives you something that you wouldn't get from grain. But it's, it's perceptible if you're looking for it. But otherwise, it just adds depth and character. Um, you can do the same with D2, the Belgian candy sugar, somewhat. Uh, maltodextrin definitely will give you it gives you some body, but it'll give you this different sugar quality. Um, and then dextrose is, tastes like nothing, more or less. Um, lactose right. has, I think everybody knows that lactose sweetness. Um, we use, I mean, you can use DME as well. I still don't think it's quite as good as, you know, mashed extracted sugar. I, it's probably how they make it, but it doesn't have all the specialty grains in there. Right. It's just... Um, Two-row, more or less. And then you have, gosh, honey. We've had some awesome, awesome beers come from different honeys, all the different types of honey. Uh, we did one with Brazilian pepper honey, which isn't – it's a tree. It's actually a, an invasive species of tree. Mm. But it flowers, and they get honey. It doesn't – it's not peppers, like hot <laughs> right, peppers. Right. It's just the name of the plant. But it has uh, – the honey's almost green. It's kind of a neon mm. color. And we've used – 15 gallons, which is, I think the buckets weigh like 55 pounds or 60 pounds. So you can do the math on that. It's a lot of weight, but it's really, in 15 barrels, it's not that much. And But we did that in a, um, we call them, it's more like a stock ale than it is a barley wine. It appeals to a barley wine drinker, but it's not. It's darker in color usually because okay. that's the way I like it. I like the darker caramels. Um, but that <laughs> even at 15 barrels with that much honey, you could just pull that Brazilian pepper honey note through. So I think you know, I, I think people would scoff at maltodextrin and DME to hit gravity, but no one scoffs at honey. Oh, that's a nice addition. It's just a different kind of sugar. Yeah. And so if you if you can get over some of the the preconceived notions about adding sugar and just think of these as materials and, you know, different colors on your palette to paint with, I, I think it, it opens up a lot. And that's one thing we have definitely grown with in the past few years.
0: Are you adding all of these then in boil when you, when you add them? Yep. Okay.
1: Maple syrup too. I was Yeah. Uh, just, Oh, well that's, that's just maple. It's not adding, you know, a bag of sugar. I mean, kind of, it's more interesting, maybe sugar, but it is just, it's just sugar.
0: Now, one of the challenges when you're adding it a hot side, obviously you do want to do that because you're going to, you know, s- uh, sterilize it that sure. way by boiling, um, you know, but the big challenge when you're boiling is that you're driving off some of the nice little, you know, volatile uh, uh flavor and aroma sure. elements that kind of come with something like molasses or honey. Uh, molasses or maple has syrup. staying power. Yeah.
1: Maple syrup does not. Right. Maple syrup has pretty much no staying power. Um we stopped using it in in uh boil. It's just useless. I mean, it's not useless. It's sugar. But yeah. it's not you don't get m- maple character. I think you probably have to go had almost 50% maple syrup and 50% wort to get maple yeah. character to carry through. It just, uh, for whatever reason, it's one of the hardest flavors to maintain. Whereas, like, that Brazilian pepper honey, for whatever reason, just it a small amount carried through. And one honey that I really like, not for stouts necessarily, is meadow foam honey. But that doesn't, like, it's fantastic right, honey. Right. It tastes like marshmallows. Oh,
0: it is. It's wonderful.
1: Yeah, we barrel-aged some, which was awesome. Uh, it was just fun to get a... Fifty-five gallon drum of Meadow Foam honey, I have buckets of it still around. Yeah, but uh, yeah, we barrel aged some of that. But I would, it just we used it at Cigar City once. I've used it, and it just it it loses that. Like I, I wanted to get that marshmallow to
0: come through. Right. It just couldn't. So that's uh, trial and error, really. Do you you adjust timing to try to hold on to any of those aromatics, or is it just kind of a ten minutes left in the boil and whirlpool? Usually, okay. we we
1: go with whirlpool because it's moving. Um, and the burners off. Our our kettles direct fire. Um, We learned a long time ago, thanks to uh, a certain somebody, about Dulce de Leche. We made a Dulce de Leche stout called DDT. Um, You can look up that beer. It was great beer, but uh, that stuff is real thick, and it would go straight to the bottom and burn so badly to the bottom of the kettle. But honestly... That burning on the bottom of the kettle was some of the character of the beer, yeah. which was a great beer and it was a really nice addition to the the flavor profile. But it was also absolutely miserable to clean up, and I will never forget the first time um, our uh, collab partner was was here doing that beer, and it came time we knocked out, tasted the wort, cool. All right, I gotta head out, and I looked in the bottom of the kettle, I'm <laughs> like, guess cleanups just me. That's <sighs> a drag. <laughs> But yeah so it, when it comes time to add it's different sugars behave differently in the in the kettle um, we uh, a lot of our sugars now like when it's a planned addition will actually lauter and then spin the whirlpool the beer and then add it before we get to boil because the sugar will basically the more stuff you have dissolved in water uh, the higher your boiling point and so you'll drive off water faster, you'll boil down faster if you have a higher gravity to start with. And so for example, I can basically tell when we're our gravity is going up by watching the temperature of boil. So, you know, most of our beer boils were pretty close to sea level, 212. Double IPAs, 213, maybe 214. Imperial Stouts, if we don't make it to 215, then I know we're too low and it's, we got to keep going. So. And adding the sugar earlier just helps push that boiling point mm. up higher, and so we it didn't it didn't really seem to make a difference when you're talking about you know DME maltodextrin, uh, cane sugar, dextrose, lactose. You're not; those aren't aromatic compounds. You're going to drive off. Right, That's just right. flavor. And why wait to the end? And then maybe at the end, well, you know, it's most of it dissolved. But sometimes you'll see like lactose will just sit on the bottom, or DME will form these like gnarly clumps. Um, some of the rice syrup solids or uh, brewer's crystals, they call it, which is like glucose solids, they're like rocks. It'll form these rocks, because, mm-hmm. especially here because it's so humid. Even in the bag, you'll get these just – they're rocks. Yeah. And they, they don't dissolve for we'll, – we'll actually put them in a bag and hang it in boil, and it'll take 30 minutes for those to dissolve. So wow. adding those at the end of boil – Hopefully they dissolved, but yeah. if we hit it early and then go through boil, we know we get it dissolved. We right. don't have any of that issues, and we get that higher bro- boiling point, so it, it just it made more sense. But something like maple syrup we used to add at the end, but it just it still didn't have enough impact. Uh, molasses is very hardy, but we still add it at the end, and it's a, it's a liquid, so we don't have the yeah. solubility problems as much. If we were to do dulce de leche in the kettle, I don't know. <laughs> I would do it with the burner off, though. Yeah, yeah. Even though it was so good burnt. It was so awful to clean.
0: <laughs> so, so, you do, you know, now you'll use a little bit of sugar here and there. Sure. Um, you know, obviously you're not brewing it uh, for a 7% uh, beer anymore. No. no. You've now kind of scaled that up. Sure. What does what is, what is this modern uh, kind of imperial stout, barrel aged imperial stout base look like?
1: Um, we, uh, I mean, 30 Play Doh's our floor. Okay. We go up from there. We're not very particular about where we end up above there Hmm. um, because our process, like our imperial stout is made for barrel aging. That's specifically what it's made for. We don't, we do, we've released probably three non-barrel aged stouts and basically nobody cares. And when I taste them, it's like, man, this would be a lot better barrel aged. And so the recipe has always been, and as far as I'm concerned, will always be best barrel-aged. So for us, we always have the ability to blend afterwards. We can pull from different barrels, um, different times. Um, in Florida, the barrel-aging process can be very rapid because it's... I mean, in the summer, the beer is in the warehouse, and it's 83 degrees day and night. I mean, the temperature and the, the air never gets below 80 for about four months right. straight. Um, so it just never... Cools down, but because of that, it's pushing really deep into that wood, and uh, or at least that's the theory. And so we get excellent barrel extraction. Um, We've done for a while. Our imperial stouts, our rare dos was probably six to nine months in the barrel was really, and I I haven't seen a huge difference going to over a year. Um, It's a little more round, but at the same time, um, we've when we did that, we were also had an easier time scaling up because we got the new brew house in. So, you know, there were multiple factors in play. This wasn't a scientific trial. I don't, yeah. I don't know for sure how, how everything plays, but I, I, we've gone, now we've done, we did a barrel that ran two years in Florida and I was concerned. We actually lost the barrel in the warehouse and found it at 19 months. It's like, Oh, there's batch 56. Whoops. And at that point I was like, <laughs> why don't we just go for two years? That's one barrel. we got plenty of other barrels. So we, uh, we sat on it for two years and that uh, we still have a little bit of that left, but it was a really great beer and the character is much different and it's not like up North. I feel like it takes at least a year. I know, uh, Sean Hill talks about, uh, summers, how many summers a beer will take in the barrel, um, because he's, his climate is much colder. Right. And for us, it's it, honest. I feel like it's just straight time. It never really gets cold enough here to move that volume of liquid a a bunch. It's probably top We're here in December,
0: and it's a high of 80 right now today. Exactly. Yeah. So even on the
1: cold days, like, oh, yeah, it'll be cold for two days. Well, that's way too much volume of liquid to cool down in two days, to even just ambient temperature. It'll cool down some, but we're not getting those big swings. Right, right. So I think you fit three Vermont
0: summers into every 12 months.
1: Basically. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think there's probably something to the cold weather aging, the, in and, right, the right. in and out of the wood. I think that's something that we don't really, we can't do. Yeah. But, um, at the same time, I'm very happy with what we get out of the barrels and going longer. The beard, it tastes older. It's oxidation. Yeah. It's what you'd expect. But, um, I was really surprised and pleased the way the wood tannins didn't dominate. It wasn't just, you know, oak. It actually retained a lot of really nice character and you got a nice play. So because of the bourbon barrel aging, I've started to drink bourbon. So I'd understand it because for the longest time I'd never even tasted bourbon, but bourbon barrel aging the crap out of beer. I was like, well, I should probably understand this (laughs) side of the raw material because I'm using a lot of them. And uh, because of that, I think like the two year for a lot of and a lot of craft beer drinkers, I think, have gotten more into bourbon. I think it it speaks it plays more into that that taste side. So we're going to try a few more. Uh, We've got probably 60 barrels. Just they'll probably wait for that two year mark and then we'll do a a series with the two year aged.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the impact of different bourbons and different aged bourbons on your beers. Um, as you've gotten into, you know, bourbon and kind of explored that, talk to me a little bit about, uh, some of the different effects that, uh, you know, whether it's the composition of that, of that whiskey, whether that's bourbon or whether that's rye, sure. whether it's weeded bourbon, whether it's a two year bourbon or a four year bourbon or an eight or a 12 year bourbon, mm-hmm. um, talk to me a little bit about some of that range of difference that you've found in, uh, in barrel aging your beers.
1: Yeah. Um, we're probably, uh, in the minority on this, whereas where I prefer more, uh, younger bourbon barrels, um, not really young, like finishing barrels we've used, um,
0: not a big fan.
1: They didn't, they didn't bring the character forwards, but you say finishing barrels, you mean barrels
0: where they like, moved like a bourbon into, like for a year, they've thrown it into this other barrel sure. just to add some character to it.
1: Yeah. The Woodford double oaked was the one we used a bunch of, uh, we've gotten some other ones and it just, it's just Okay. It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't bad, but it wasn't, it was just not rich. And I think they, honestly, I think they treat their finishing barrels. I don't think they char the same. I think they toast, um, which I didn't know at the time, but I think that had something to do with it as well. Um, but we, um, we like, I mean, Heaven Hill just, the problem with bourbon barrels is how little information the distilleries want to share or care to sure, share. Sure. They, you, if I've been to several and they really don't care and some people, some of them are to the point where they're kind of mad that you're asking. Like, just sh- don't talk to me about this. I have no information for you. Um, and it, that's kind of frustrating. Um, I also understand they don't want, and there's even laws about tying distillery distilled products and fermented products together. Um, there's all sorts of that to worry about. But it just seems like such a missed opportunity for everybody to not talk more about like what these barrels were right because they are an important piece but so we don't get a ton of information um heaven hill gives you nothing really yeah um there's we've used so many different types but i really like what we get out of heaven hill and i'm guessing those are like four to seven year yeah right in there probably evan williams barrels because they make a ton of that and um and it's great and they're consistently great um, we've had ups and downs with some of the other ones. Um, big rye fan. Um, I, I was actually born about 10 miles from Templeton, Iowa, home of Templeton rye. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've got family that was arrested for bootlegging, probably Templeton rye, the, uh, not commercial version. <laughs> um, so I, I've, I've, uh, sought those barrels out. Um, but we've used other rye barrels, Woodford rye. Um, gosh, who else did we use? We used <sighs> there's been a lot, um just what kind of what comes around. And when you need barrels, I just go to the different suppliers and ask what you've got. And one of the most interesting barrels that I'm, we've just got a bunch of, we were told all of them, but that was a lie apparently, uh, is Woodford's Chocolate Rye, their uh, master's collection. I happened to be there visiting a friend not to do anything with bourbon. I was up in that area and we went to Woodford and they were bottling the chocolate rye that day. Hadn't talked about it. And I said, those came out of a barrel and that was a product that was designed from start to finish to be that whereas most bourbons the the craft is not in making the liquid it's in selecting barrels and blending the liquid right. and you know and storage like there's a lot to it but it's not like from a brewery aspect I'm looking at liquid production and that's recipe formulation I, you know, process all of that. Those are important pieces to me, but Unless for them, you're four it's Four roses and
0: making 12 different iterations right. of, of yeast and recipe, you know, most, exactly. most distillers are, you Buffalo know, Buffalo trace, two, three, four, maybe if, you know, but, I think uh, Buffalo trace is three, they said, yeah.
1: and it's just, it was kind of disappointing. Like, Oh, right. it's, is it an Eagle rare barrel or is it a Buffalo trace barrel? Like it, they're the same. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Uh, in some ways, the only thing that would matter to me is the older, the whiskey, the longer it was in the barrel for me, kind Of the worst, the barrel is likely to perform hmm. for uh, barrel aging the beer, which, the, unless you better you're, the marketing for the beer and yes. the worse the flavor, right? It kind of, <laughs> I mean, it's 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 disappointing that yeah, way, yeah. um, but in if you another bourbon
0: r- county in a 30 year bourbon barrel,
1: uh, <laughs> right? But at the same time, it yeah, sort of makes yeah. sense because in those 30 years, well, of course, they took all the good stuff out of the barrel and they left you with a, a tusk, right? So, you know. Other than the liquid that is still wet in the wood, the the oak itself is pretty well spent. Where no, and after
0: thirty years, right, There's a lot of dry oak inside of that sure. barrel, and uh, you know a very small amount of liquid left. Yep. Right. So,
1: so that's where I. I mean, I know people have done amazing things. I know the Dark Horse Gold Wax Pappy uh, conspiracy theory was pretty hilarious. Um, but yeah, other than marketing for the beer, I've not I've not really enjoyed the beers much more. And I think there's but that's coming from my perspective sure, sure. as a brewer, where you know I have access to 500 bourbon barrels to right. go taste out of, whereas a consumer doesn't have all of that to play with. So you don't,
0: yeah. And that's your environment here in Florida with the way that your you know warehouse ages your beer mm-hmm. and everything else. That's and true so, too. That's yeah. that's also true. Yeah.
1: But that's what I found works for me. The biggest difference I've found is um, size of the barrel. So what our first barrels were. Uh, Palm Ridge, they're five-gallon wood barrels, the cutest little things. Very convenient because you could just pick them up and move them around as needed. Sure, sure. Um, But then we got a lot of Pritchard's barrels, 15-gallon barrels. um, And those the aging process on those is much faster. So you're just dealing with higher surface area to beer ratio. And so the five-gallon barrels you can have pretty great beer out of in two months, but then you have not even five gallons of beer. And the 15-gallon barrels... I mean, going six months is definitely the limit. And, yeah, and the and the barrels themselves just for whatever reason seem to have crappier structural integrity. Uh, we've had more, sure, issues. definitely
0: thinner staves, and yeah, yeah. yeah. and
1: so they they uh, dry out and leak. Which, thankfully, uh, being humid here, we don't have a huge you know oak drying from the outside and shrinking problem. But um, those barrels, we've always had problems. with. and then on top of that, they're uh, the size of the the bung is like an inch and a half, which, and the barrel's so short, there's not a bulldog for that. So <laughs> emptying those barrels just sucks. Yeah, We used to try to, we made a bulldog out of some pipe and a one of the wood bungs that actually fits that hole, and we tried a rubber one, and nothing really worked because the barrels, if you pressurize them, you'd have these tiny little streams or mists of beer coming out from between the staves. And so we stopped doing that. And now we just siphon them like we're yeah. basically homebrewing. Uh, we have an, two auto siphons. We put, pick them up on the forklift, run the auto siphons into the top of the tank. It works. Um, yeah, we're probably introducing a ton of oxygen. It doesn't seem to affect it. It works. So we just we, that's how we handle those. But they're a pain in the butt. But you can, you know, if you want to do, if you're looking at a project, say if we wanted to start a, if it was September and we wanted to have a barrel aged collab ready in March for, with somebody, we would, we would source small barrels because we could pull that off in that timeline and make a quality product. Whereas with big barrels, especially over that winter timeline without all of the heat all the time, we'd have a, I don't think we could make as good a product. So there's, there's something to be said about that, but. Really, yeah. The when it comes to the bourbon barrels, there's like a. I, I think the sweet spot is probably like a seven year, whereas mm. I, oh, the Pappy twenty three barrel age, great, go get it. There's hardly any of it, so whatever. It's it's not our thing though.
0: Well, you know, that's even marketing for Pappy alone. It's not the best bourbon they make. um but we'll just leave that and let that one sure, go. Sure, sure. That's that's a whole. <laughs> yeah, debate. yeah. Um, I I I still feel like I'm I'm trying to wrap my head around the uh, you know the kind of core grains because you mentioned sure. that you tried to build a, a good caramel component yes, to it absolutely. And you mentioned you liked your, your brief special roast. Yep. Uh, what is what is some of the rest of that malt bill look like for you, and how do you <clears throat> build some of that kind of caramel flavor in the middle of it?
1: Uh, well, I mean, we we just use two row for the base. Um, I've not found. A lot of benefit to mixing up uh base malts, running Maris Otter. We did a lot of that with Cigar City and based on those results, it's never really something I've wanted to incorporate. It just adds expense without adding much character. Yeah. Um and it a lot of times those other grains are not as efficient to get your sugar, which is really what it's about. It's all about sugar, not necessarily adding sugars, but the sugar content of the liquid. I can
0: see the nuance of of some of those malts being completely lost in the giant flavors and huge sweetness and adjunct to Latin kind of approach that you take here. Sure.
1: People who who do them will tell you that it carries through. People who, I know, one guy uses three different base malts in his Imperial Stout, and boy, does it make a difference. I was like, okay. I feel like you might not know that blind tasting, though. Because you know you do that, you taste it. But otherwise, it just doesn't really, it's not a thing that that carries, I don't think it carries the weight. I think you really get it from the other grains. And so we use, um, sometimes we'll use a bunch of Munich malt. Um, Sometimes we'll use, what did we do? We did one with uh, golden naked oats, a lot of that. But it's not, those are, those are grains to add kind of a different character and we won't necessarily hit the specialty the darker specialty grains as hard in that so that maybe some of that will carry through a little bit better um, but it's not when it comes to base we just we stick with two row and then for caramels it's i like caramunic uh, one two or three we use a lot of caramunic three i think it's a beautiful uh, caramel flavor it's rich without being like cara 120 Kind of, I feel like there's a there's a marked difference between those two grains, and I, I don't know the actual love bond on Caramel Munich Three, but I just I feel like it's it's not easily replaced. I feel like um, what is it the um, is it, double roast car- DRC Simpsons? Is it double roasted caramel? I can't remember what it stands for. <laughs> I don't know why I I'm spacing that right yeah, now. Yeah. But we use that grain, um, and that I think also has a really unique. Caramel flavor, and I feel like finding those grains that'll give you just a little nuance, as opposed to just like Cara ten through sixty or ten through eighty. Right. Those are a little monotone, and they're they're useful, but I feel like finding that little twist on the the caramel grain will give you a little more range in like the middle of the beer, and that carries through. So we use Munich three. Um, we do use uh, Cara eighty. I will always throw in light caramel malts. I feel like a lot of people miss that in stouts. I feel like there's, it's underappreciated because they're making a dark beer, they go dark across the board. Yeah. Whereas there is really something nice about that bright sweetness that just completes that range. Whereas if you just go dark, everything tastes dark. And it's just, you get more burnt. Whereas I'm looking for that. It's not it's not quite milk chocolate, but as a comparison, it's dark chocolate versus milk chocolate. And I want to skew towards milk chocolate more than I do dark chocolate. Not that I don't appreciate the other side just for our beers, I found that works best. And I feel like that will always work best with the vanillas from the bourbon because that is vanilla and milk chocolate. It's just it's hard to beat.
0: Yeah, in a lot of ways too. You're trying to kind of visualize and uh, produce these things that are going to oxidize in a favorable character sure. for you. Um, you know, since you're thinking about how this beer is not going to taste right out of the out of the uh, kettle, but how it's going to taste out of a barrel nine yep. months from now. Um, you it know. Takes practice <laughs>
1: getting used to that. Also, <laughs> yeah. tasting that beer at 83 degrees still um, out of the barrel is also takes practice because you you're you get used to it. And then going around with people trying to, oh, we can try some barrels. We'll pull some nails. And you hand it to people that have never done that, and it's warm. It's not, oh, it's room temperature. It's warm. And the heat from the booze is just exploding off your tongue. And, like, oh, boy, that's hot. And it's like, oh, it, oh yeah, yeah. No, it's it's because it's warm. Just relax. There's, there's like, all, all of our, our staff and myself, we get used to that flavor, and we just kind of ignore the alcohol burn. But it just comes with practice.
0: Yeah, how do you think about that? I mean, and that's an interesting point. It's something that, uh, you know, sour beer makers also have to deal with. Sure. When you are tasting these straight out of the barrel and trying to construct an idea of a blend mm-hmm. um, from different batches and different barrels and different places, uh, you know, you are not just having to kind of taste those actual flavors. You're having to envision what those taste like? Twenty degrees colder, mm-hmm. thirty degrees colder, as well as carbonated, sure. you know, with the additional kind of carbonic acid component to yep. it, and how that brightness and effervescence changes that on your palate. Absolutely. How do you? How do you kind of wrap your head around that kind of blending process? Um, and do you? Are there mental exercises that you employ to kind of remind yourself, or what? Or some things that you've learned about how? the you know those flavors move from when you're tasting the unblended into the actual final product
1: yeah the um there's a few things the the first thing is because it's warm and the alcohol is evaporating you're going to get the aromatics really explode and so that's you can almost get kind of like a fool's gold where at 83 degrees at four months in the barrel um it'll you'll get a lot of barrel on the nose a lot of bourbon but it's not it's it's not going to really be there once you're finished. Right. And so what you're looking it's nice to be able to pick up the aromas. Like if you're using a different barrel or unique barrel, you get in, you can pick out a lot of the aromatics that will carry through. Um, but there's a part of that. You have to take it with a grain of salt because it will yeah. change. Um, but how it changes, you don't always know. Um, but when it comes to things like um, the alcohol heat, um, there's a, there's a still a range Everything tastes like it has a lot of alcohol in it at that temperature. But it doesn't – some will just be incredibly hot. And you know that, okay, well, this is is probably – it probably is higher in ABV. That's one of the challenges we have. People ask, oh, what's the ABV? And it's like, unless I have an alkalizer, I don't know. Like it's been in the barrel. We've sent stuff off. And the range is you pick up nothing to you pick up two points. And so I wish I knew. I think if we were to print it, we would have to know. But that's an expensive piece of equipment, and ABV is just not that important to me. It's certainly not a target. Um, right, right. But it's you, you can get a, a sense of that when you're tasting it warm. But mostly what I'm looking for is do I have um, adequate vanillins? Am I picking up the vanillins from the barrel? That's the first thing. Um, and then on top of that, do I have – what we'll get sometimes is you'll get this sort of sharp caramel, like burn – that goes with the alcohol and it can be hard to split that out but you get used to tasting this it's like um, I don't know a lot of people if you've eaten too much candy and you just like that sugar starts to burn a little bit because you've just had so much and it lingers in the back of your throat you get a little bit of that and it's it's distinct that's how I think of it. That's what it reminds me of. Yeah. And that's how that's when I know, okay, this is probably not standalone. And it's and we're consistent through the batch unless we split the batch into different barrels. So we're we're usually just tasting by batch. And then we'll we'll blend based on that. But then you can get somewhere the sweetness that lingers is gonna be the sweetness that you will get in the beer. That does not change hardly at all. Mm. And so if you taste a barrel and it's woo, that is that is sweet. Uh, you you know that you have that, but that can play with other things like that forty one Play-Doh beer we did. It's like that is sweet. We made syrup; it poured thick out of the barrel, and so you could tell. All right, this is. I know there's a market for that on its own. Um, I don't think it's what we've built our name on, and I'm not opposed to you know showing that we can do that. But it, it's still. I feel like I'm a bad judge of it because it's it's not what I like. I like to be able to drink, you know, a whole snifter and there's a lot of beers that for me it's they do incredibly well in rate groups because everyone has like one or two ounces. Right, right. And it's amazing at that scale. And I feel like the first rare scoop we did was that. Like, this is incredible. I wish I had more. But if you actually tried to drink the whole <laughs> bottle, you'd be like, Man, I don't I don't want this anymore. Yeah, yeah. And there's and that and that's it's neat. But it's not really our goal and it's not what I want to make. And so right. we, we try to, we try not to go too far down that road, but um, those are those are really the tasting notes, and and it comes. the uh, the most interesting stuff that we do with tasting out of barrels is not really in the stouts. It's when we get into the stock ale barley wine era yeah. area, and that you can get a lot more variation. I feel like the barrels play a lot differently, and you can do you can manipulate that a lot more, whereas the stouts. At least when you know, with what we're doing, you get we do brew several different stouts so that we have some variation to play with. And it is, and there are new grains like we talked about earlier, like that's it's been awesome. Chocolate spelt that that I didn't know that existed yeah. until last year, yeah, yeah. And that's a great that's fun. And so, you can build recipes, and uh, it started with just swapping out like the grain types, you know, oh, we use chocolate rind instead of chocolate malt or something like that, and then that didn't really work that well so we had to just build recipes new recipes to use some of the new grains and get some nuance and not be so monotone
0: yeah let's talk a little bit about pasteurization sure. this is something that uh, the industry uh, has looked to you for you've written about it extensively it's there on your website sure. uh, uh, you spoke with one of our writers, John Varivi, for the next issue of, of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine's Gearhead column about pasteurization as we've kind of tackled the subject. Um, talk to me a little bit about um, your experience with that and uh, you know the circumstances that kind of caused you to do more uh, research and development on that uh, and some of the systems that you've started to employ where you've ended up. And then I'd love to talk a little bit about how you know integrating pasteurization into your process has impacted how you even, you know, brew and then also add other ingredients into your beers. Yeah. Pasteurization has
1: had a huge impact actually. Um, so to, to start with pasteurization, um, first encountered it in craft beer, um, at Abita, Uh, we were looking, they had their bottling line for sale. I worked at cigar city. We were bottling on a PPM thing that I resurrected. It was awful, but we went going to Abita and seeing their pasteurizer. They used a tunnel pasteurizer. It was the first time I'd seen one, and in especially in craft beer. And it was a very educational trip talking with them about that. The bottler was fine. I had almost no questions, but I grilled them on that pasteurizer um, because it was it was fascinating that. And we were, they were bottling. I think it's Andy Gator. their double IPA. This is a long time ago, and it was in bombers. And so we pulled a bomber before it went into the pasteurizer. And their pasteurizer actually went from you know cold. And then it came out of the other end cold again, um, so you could taste it cold side by side pre and post. And I got to say, it ruined that beer in 30 minutes. Just ruined that double IPA. Sure. Well, that's a good education. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but then on top of that, talking about what they, uh, how they've been using it, and they said one of their big beers was Turbo Dog, very malty, um, chocolatey, and so I they were like, and I said, so how does the pasteurizer work with that? I said, well. Interestingly, our taste panel has been unanimous every time that it is better post-pasteurization. I so, well, that's something to file away. That's interesting because it ruined the double IPA. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, so just kept that in mind. And um, going forwards at Cigar City, we had – oh, man, we made some bad beers, really super infected beers. And pasteurization was seen as you know something that exists – nobody i mean the big guys do it but none of the craft guys were doing it cigar city wasn't really about to get into it but it was seen as an option it was if we want to do x y and z how can we do it our cubano espresso which had coffee vanilla and cocoa nibs in it and we did it in four packs bottles and they were infected and it was terrible and it was like how can we make this beer right, stable right. and always in the conversation was pasteurization and also never taken seriously because the equipment's expensive so it was just, it continued to be batted around. And then they had, uh, they test, they've got their lab going. And one of the beers they tested um, came back with uh, some sort of bacillus. And so to save it, it had, it was displaying no signs of infection, but it, pro- it had living bacteria. So they um, went with a, Basically a batch pasteurizer, because it was a small, small batch one. I think it was a barrel-aged beer. I don't even remember which one. But um, basically just loading them into the mash tun and heating it, with covering them with water, hot water and heating that water up. Loading and, the
0: finished package, mm-hmm. packaged uh, beer into the yep. mash okay. tun. Yep, lo-
1: sli- putting bottles on the false bottom, sure. loading them in there, and then uh, heating them with the sparge heads, running hot water through there until they got hot. There's a lot of problems with doing that, but at the same time, it did work. So, and it was, you know, it's equipment you already have. So there's really no investment other than the water and the energy to heat it. So I was like, okay. So we had our and a whole lot of people like
0: you know, handing bottles down to a lot of labor, a lot of labor.
1: Um, But yeah, so we when we first opened our tap room in 2013, we were at pegs and the cash to get us over the finish line to get open came from a bottle release that we did at pegs in i think june and so we opened in august and we were so we were hand bottling with a beer gun and we did 1200 bottles of one beer and like 600 of another one over a couple days i think it was two days it was miserable we did it outside because we had no space and so we did our best i mean we were not totally cavalier but also, there was no way to for us to do it in a clean room or something. So, that the Rare DOS, the 1200 uh, bottle run, that beer ended up infected. And so, we did, a, it was our first encounter with that. Um, we'd had excellent stability. I mean, it's got plenty of alcohol. It's been sitting in barrels outside, even. We're storing the barrels outside. Wow. Um, and it's like, if it was going to be infected, it would have shown up by now. Sure. Right? Well, that didn't, that proved <laughs> That not to logic be the case. was not true. Yeah. Uh, so, it seemed so reasonable, but it just wasn't. Um, so so we ended up with, that was what our first encounter with that, and we just uh, basically paid people. Um, they claimed they had bad ones. Here's your money back, mailing cash. That sucked. Uh, we also gave the option to get a replacement bottle, which fortunately a lot of people took, so it could defer us spending the cash back sure, out. Sure. Um, thank you, consumers. That was uh, kind of a loan. Um, And then uh, we also, I think our third option had something to do with our barrel-aged event. I don't remember that exactly. But in any case, after that, um, we were coming up to another bottle release and we didn't wanna have the same problem. And we also wanted to um, add adjuncts to it. And so the risk was going up. So our first bottle run after that we did in the bombers and we had this little forehead bottler. That's a generous bottler. piece of metal, but it, uh, filler. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it did function. It was slightly faster, not four times faster than the beer gun, but it was slightly faster. And so we did that. And then our solution for that one was to just sit on it and incubate it. Like, we're not going to release this for six weeks. We'll incubate a case in the hottest place, which is not too hot, but like perfect temperature for, uh, infection. And so we had to pull, you know, one bottle randomly, filled a case, put it up in this upstairs chiller room, which probably is in the summer and, you know, 110. Was like Perfect. That's great. We'll leave it there. And so then we went through all the bottles after six weeks, no problem. And so we released the beer. And then we did one with adjuncts. I was like, I, I don't trust this. So then we tried the mash ton pasteurization and we had no issues with that beer. So we kept doing that. And it's super labor-intensive. And then we got a bottler, like a, a real 12-head rotary bottler. And so now we're making you know, thousands of bottles. And like that method, is it'll work. Fortunately, we had two mash tons on that brew house that we decommissioned. So we used both of those mash tons. So we're alternating mash tons And we're able to more or less keep up with the bottler running this mash tun. It's like a batch or bath pasteurizer. Um, but the, prob- the problem with doing that method is you don't, without a probe, you don't know what temperature you're getting to and everyone's like oh we'll just take a bottle out and measure it well you're going to heat them up until they explode so you don't you're not going to reach in there with exploding bottles it's incredibly dangerous There's actually the first time we did it um because i knew we needed to get as hot as we could to hit pasteurization temperature hopefully in the bottles and so when they start exploding that's as hot as we can go, because if we keep going, we'll have no beer left. It'll all explode, which, great, we don't have any bad beer. We also have no beer. Yeah. So um, so it was sort of finding that. That was, that was our target, and that was the plan, and it was sort of working. Um, and we did that for a couple of years and then invested and actually bought a tunnel pasteurizer because, for me, um, the best thing, I'm not trying to – we weren't doing any packaged sour beers or fruit edition beers at the time. Um, I, I don't, we still aren't, but, uh, it was all about <clears throat> what's the best way to ensure I have a quality product. I mean, people are sure. paying a premium. I feel like I owe it to them to have confidence in what they're purchasing. That was always my thing. That's why we yeah. gave people their money yeah. back. I'm like, this isn't cheap. This is a premium product. We're charging yeah. not quite top dollar Corey King, but, uh, <laughs> 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 But we're charging good money. I mean, this is
0: expensive beer, so we owe. Kokori the- is not the most expensive out there these no? days. I? and I know a few folks that are that are gunning for him. Oh, it. I think Toppling Goliath may have taken that with. Oh, the, good the, point. With a hundred dollar KBBS yeah. uh, this past year, it's good for them. All good there is them. is a consumer that's willing to pay it or a consumer True. that isn't. I agree. Is I the agree. Market I really, there or I really, is the market not there. I agree.
1: I actually, yeah. I agree hundred percent. People complaining that it's too expensive, just don't buy it. It's not
0: exactly. It's, really, it's not worth complaining it's about. Plenty of expensive things in the world. That I can't afford. I just don't buy them. Yeah,
1: I and it's not worth being mad about it. No. So uh, yeah, I don't. I don't get things you can't afford. I don't get the trial. anger. You want to make fun of it because it's expensive and it seems yeah. ridiculous yeah. to you. Yeah, sure, it's whatever. But don't be mad about it. It's not yeah. the brewery's fault that people want to pay them a lot of money. So anyway, but because of that, so I was. I wanted to make sure and do the best we could. And so for me, tunnel pasteurization won out over uh, like a HTST high temp short time or flash right. pasteurizer. Um, like a tank-to-tank kind of pasteurization process Um, because then I could do anything I wanted. And I always felt like, based on my experience with Cigar City, um, the packaging line, there are so many tiny spaces, little channels, seals, just so much potential in that machine for something to go wrong that if I start out with a pasteurized product, I still don't know if I've done it by the time it goes through the machine.
0: And I think to clarify for people that aren't as familiar with this, a tunnel pasteurizer takes your finished packaged beer, Mm -hmm. runs it through this long tunnel over time, heats it up. Yeah, a Um,
1: a tunnel pasteurizer is a very – it's a – It's a long tunnel. It's a very wide belt. Ours is about three feet wide, and it moves in inches per minute. So we're running at like 6.9 inches per minute. Incredibly slow. It's about 30 minutes end to end, which makes it very time consuming to run tests on, because it's 30 minutes per (laughs) test. Um, yeah,
0: yeah. So, but it, yeah. versus a kind of you know flash pasteurizer, which will move beer from one tank to another and pasteurize it through a kind of you know kind of coil kind of system, right. To heat it for you know to that kind of pasteurization point. Yeah, and the the biggest difference, but your system, you know, with the tunnel means that it's at the very end of the the mm-hmm. uh, you know process. The next
1: time that bottle is opened is by the consumer, right? Right. Um, versus
0: kind of pasteurizing before you put it through packaging.
1: Sure. Yeah. And that, and those, the two pasteurizations have two, have a, a notable difference, not just in how the process works, but in the temperature. So uh, flash pasteurizer or uh, HTST, I think it's the more technical term is they, they run to 160 degrees Fahrenheit for about 15 seconds, roughly is the standard. And ours, we are, you can't get to 160 degrees in the package safely. Um so we're uh pasteurization begins at 140 or 60 degrees Celsius and then I believe it's every minute at that temperature is one pasteurization unit. And then if you go up in temperature, then you get more PUs per time or you can just extend the time. So for us in the tunnel, we're only getting to about 145, 146, like sixty-three, uh I think is like our peak in the bottle, but it's running over several minutes. And so we'll end up with we get our PU calculation and same as a HTST at 15 seconds only at 160 degrees. We'll have a PU calculation and they may be the same pasteurization unit. But I do think there is a difference in the quality of the pasteurization. I do think the higher temperature will give you. Closer to a sterile product. Pasteurization is not sterilization. They are not the same. They should not be construed. You are extending shelf life. You are not guaranteeing there is nothing living in the product. That's an important thing for anybody getting into pasteurization to understand is do not trust it as sterilization. It is not that. It has a very important function and can be can give you the stability you're looking for, especially when you're dealing with like a barrel-aged stout, uh, which already has a lot of product stability aspects to it. Um, but it's, th- those things often are construed. Oh, it came back with, you know, clean, perfect zeros. And it's like, but you're not, uh, maybe, hopefully, but a lot of, more often you'll get, uh, like non-spoilage factors. And so you'll get, um, bacteria that won't live in beer, but isn't dead either. And right. so you don't have a spoilage problem. You just have, you know, not perfect. And so that's really the goal of pasteurization. So for us, the tunnel ensures that even if we have, we weren't quite perfect on the bottler or something happened in route to the bottler, um, I still think we will have a shelf-stable product thanks to the tunnel pasteurizer. Whereas with HTST, it's a much smaller unit, which works for a lot of facilities. They have a lot of space constraints often. Um, I feel like the main purpose of that is you're worried about bacteria from the barrel and you know, there is air exposure. So there is potential for contamination there always. Um, and then a lot of times we're talking about adjuncts. So you're looking to add a bunch of adjuncts and there are limitations on what you're allowed to add into beer. Um, so, you know, alcohol extracted flavors, uh, require, uh, extra care and forms to fill out with the federal government. Um, definitely, um, there's a lot of flavor acts, ex- uh, flavor extracts that are uh, glycol-based that, and that will contain natural and artificial flavors. They want that on the label. They want a FDA callback number. They want all this stuff, whereas if you just use actual coconut, good to go. You don't, I, I believe they, a few years ago they made an approved list of ingredients where they basically they were just getting inundated with a statement of process, which is the form you fill out to say you're adding something right. that's not normally in beer. And it was things like, oh, we're going to put raspberries in a sour, and it's like, yeah, r- raspberries are fine. And they just had to, like all day you <laughs> right, could have had someone right. there, raspberries are fine, raspberries are fine. And so coffee, same sort of thing. And so they made a list of materials that you don't need a statement of process anymore. It's fine, but you have to use the actual materials. You can't use an extract of those materials, right. at least not legally. <clears throat> so anyway, so when you're talking about adding adjuncts, it's a lot nicer. and I th- And you get the fake flavor out of a lot of those extracts anyway. So people want to use, you know, actual coconut, real coffee, all of that. And so your cocoa nibs instead of like chocolate flavoring, um, things like that. So you're with all of those things, there's no way to, there's not very good ways to sterilize them without affecting their flavor. And so, oh, you could cook it. Well, that changes it. Um, Boil it. Obviously it's going to change it. Put it in boil. Well, is that going to carry through? all the way through fermentation. Are you going to get all of those things? Probably not, especially coconut, all those oils. It just it right. doesn't. So adding them after fermentation is, of course, now the risky, one of the riskiest times to add something. And so maintaining a stable product, people do some crazy things to focus on the, sterilizing the materials. And for us, we went the other way. We said, let's just let the materials be. Most of the time, they're probably fine anyway. We've made hundreds of variants and not had any issues. And let's just go and say, okay, well, we have a ton of factors before this point, and let's draw the line here to where we can take care of any of those and the amount of time they spend with the raw materials. Um, if they've survived barrel aging already, then from coming out of the barrel to hitting the bottle is you know, maybe two weeks. You're not, And probably a lot of that's cold to get carbonated because we do force carb our stuff. Um, which you wouldn't be able to tunnel pasteurize a bottle conditioned product unless you waited till it was carbonated and then pasteurize it. Right. We didn't, we didn't want to get into that. And there's plenty of arguments why bottle conditioning tastes better. Maybe that's fine. We don't, it's not for us. Um, we, we like the control. So that's, I, I think the, the tunnel pasteurizer is, is a solution. And it was something that we invested in prior to our, uh, most recent, very public, uh, failing with a release. We did, um, that's uh, two years ago, three years ago. I think it'll be three years ago in March. Um, yeah, we had, uh, infected bottles. We had to cancel beer week basically, which is Tampa Bay beer week is our biggest week. Um, that was a very bad day. Um, uh, the worst part was six months prior. And I believe maybe even nine months prior, we'd purchased a tunnel pasteurizer and it had been delivered in December but we didn't have the space prepped to set it up yet so it looked the way it looks is it was a very reactionary purchase it, we were actually very proactive with yeah, the tunnel pasteurizer yeah. and to have it sitting there and knowing that it would have saved us and we didn't push hard enough to get it going just that really that hurt as well that was a behind the scenes and less public hurt um, But, yeah, so that was the education into—pasteurization of barrel-aged stouts is a little harder than pasteurization of an American adjunct lager like Budweiser. Um, When we first got the tunnel pasteurizer set up, we commissioned it, and the bottles start going in, and it sounds like we're popping popcorn. We're losing—we lost 40% of the bottles. Fortunately, these were test bottles, so it uh, wasn't—it was actually— infected beer um that wasn't it was it tasted bad but it didn't have that over carb uh so that really we didn't figure that was much of a factor and they we just put them in the cooler so they would start cold and those would be our test bottles because we were going to have to dump it anyway so it was it wasn't you know 40 percent of good beer being lost but it was also oh shit is this going to work yeah um so then uh we got through more of that and it turns out um the issue was the bottles we had switched to were thinner glass. Uh, they had the same rating, but they did not perform as well. Um, they were more prone to um, blowing up, basically. Um, and then on top of that, we are fill basically what we monitor fill for is low fills because we're not going to short the customer. We're not going to sell low fills. Sure. But if it's a little high, no big deal. Who cares, right? It really matters for pasteurization hmm. because, and this is something. So, I had actually gotten it all dialed in using uh, just a actually an American adjunct logger. We bottled up a bunch of it to run tests and dial in the pasteurizer. Bought a probe uh, so we could really measure what was happening with the liquid. Like, it was the first time we were really paying attention to that and making sure we hit pasteurization. Because if we'd hit pasteurization before, and we'd had, I mean, four years of success releasing. I don't know, 150 different beers, and we had no issues. And then suddenly we had an issue with two beers out of five. Like something seemed like it changed. Yeah. But really, it was, I think it was just luck catching up with us. We'd been probably mostly lucky. Yeah. And uh, so then it comes down to precision filling. So a high-fill bottle because I dialed it in with the American Adjunct Lager. I'm like ready to go. We're set up to run barrel-aged stout. Bottling day, I'm like, we got this. This is going to run super smooth. It's going to be great. I'm going to load bottles on over here, and they'll come through the horseshoe. And the uh, first side of the horseshoe is the labeler, filler, crowner. And the second side coming back is that long tunnel. I'm like, they're going to come off of here. They're going to be labeled, done. Like, usually it was, you know, we'll fill them, and then we'll have to go back and pull them out of the boxes and label them. Like, we were prepped. And they start running through the pasteurizer, and they just start exploding. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. So I called up the pasteurizer people. I said, this is what I've got going on. They said, talk to this guy, because uh, apparently they make them also for the AB plants. And so it's this guy at Anheuser-Busch, and I called him, and I said, what's, this is what's happening. Like this, I have it. The fill height marked, like maximum fill height, was my test for the American adjunct longer. Like how full is too full? what will make them explode. So I'm running all these like millimeter increments and I'm getting consistent at this height. I'm getting 100% success. I'm not expecting it to always be 100%, but it should be close. Like we'll be in the 90s with, and so we start running and it's not, it's, we're down at like 40% loss again. This is not working. And I called him and he says, that doesn't make sense. That can't be happening. You must be running hotter. Must be this, check this. And I'm, and I get the probe. We're at like 138. We're not even to pasteurization. So, I said, this, you know, I'm not, I'm not hotter. I'm not, you know, too slow. He's like, well, this still doesn't make sense. Like, I was like, I'm aware that it doesn't make sense. That's why I'm calling you. <laughs> and uh, he says, well, I, I can't help you. I don't, that doesn't add up. I'd, I'd have to be there. I was like, well, you know, obviously I'm not going to pay to do that. So he wasn't really offering anyway. But uh, I did a little more research and I said, okay, what are my variables? It's the liquid in the bottle. That's my only variable here. And it, if you get into, um, it's probably like physics, a general gen ed physics class, there is math regarding the expansion of water based on um, how it dissolved, the same as like boiling point goes up. So water will expand differently the more that's, more stuff that's dissolved in it. And so it was, really, it was really about salinity. And so as you heat up or cool um, ocean water, Expands and contracts differently than just distilled water, right? And it's the same sort of thing. So the more stuff that's dissolved, like say I have twelve Plato beer with a ton of sugar and some adjuncts in it, instead of you know what probably started out eleven Plato OG and finished around one uh, uh, light lager, then you're you're dealing with different expansion. So we the fill height had to lower. um, We had to be almost. We could be like twenty two point two ounces was the max out of at in a twenty two ounce bottle like it any higher than that, yeah, and you might as well throw it away because it's just going to explode in the machine and so a precision precision fill height was the biggest surprise um the hardest thing to solve because nobody had information on that, and that was a real education in just I, you know liquids and and really understanding what you're dealing with and there's always more factors than you're considering it it seems like and so we now we have it figured out and we can we can run our temperatures up like we did one with um, the for we did a series of single origin vanilla beans and the mexican vanilla beans um, that bottle came back with incredibly low levels but still some levels of spoilage factor uh, lactobacillus and so we took those bottles like we'll we'll take them day of overnight them because it takes a week to get results and we we want independent lab testing i don't want to do it in-house i don't want to be making these mistakes so we send multiples to an independent lab to do what they do because they do good lab work at least we hope they're set up to do good lab work we just we just couldn't get to that level and so we then got the bottles as soon as we saw the results, it was like, okay, well, we're not going to throw it away unless we have to. But if we're going to have to throw it away, we might as well pasteurize it again and ramp, ramp that temp up. So we did, and we tripled the PUs because a little bit of temperature over that amount of time will really jump that PU sure, number. So sure. we went from our standards about 12, and we hit 36. And so sent the bottles off for testing again. Good to go. So even at 12, we'd had consistent results before and after, even as low as 6 PUs on some beers, but it it just goes to show that there are, you know, knowing if you could know, but understanding that just because you've killed lactobacillus at this temperature one time doesn't mean the next strain of lactobacillus will die at the same temperature. And if you get into some... Paper from some Danish scientist beer. I think it's Tubore, actually, from the 60s. They'd go into pasteurization and all the things, and there are lactobacillus strains that will survive. I think it was, I think they did 140. They just kept it at 140 and then just extended the time, and you had to go to 20 minutes on, like, one specific strain that they had huh, isolated to kill it. But the rest would, would be dead. Yeah. So if you were at 140 for 10 minutes, 99%. But if you went to 20 minutes, you were... For what they had isolated at the time and could test for, right. you hit 100% of the spoilage factors dead. So that was, it's we don't trust our machinery implicitly like we did because we now we've had such horrible, very public failures. Um, we we can't afford that again. I feel like we've we've got two strikes now. One that most people don't remember from 2013. One that probably a lot of people very much remember. Um, but that it's been. uh Now you know. I I don't know that we could survive a third strike. It's
0: the it's uh, what trust but verify, right?
1: (laughs) Exactly, exactly. I'm much happier with what we have. Um, I sleep better with the confidence of and our repeatable process. I mean, there's there's really no or very little human element to this. And the HTST to me, I know the way they work. Just that such a short time. If you have any variation, like any little dip. That time is so quick that you would it would almost be missed. Whereas with the tunnel, it is so long, like there's pretty much no chance a bottle could go through there and not make temperature. It's yeah. just that yeah. slow and methodical with how it works. So it's I, I I'm an advocate for it. Sure. I understand there's sure. space constraints. I'm an advocate for everybody trying pasteurization right. for adjunct stouts. Um, we've if you look at our ratings and certainly our in-house. Panels, the pasteurized bottles are a better product. It makes better beer. Multi beers in through pasteurization are improved.
0: How now? You you mentioned Andy Gator earlier getting Mm -hmm. destroyed through this process. How does that pasteurization process impact adjunct ingredients that you add into these big stouts?
1: Um, It incorporates them more or less. Incorporates them. That's what I would say. Okay. Um, I think. You can talk about um,
0: well. Now you are cooking them, but you are cooking them in a little way in an environment where they they can't mm-hmm. lose the aromatics because right. it's, it's already inside the sealed package. Exactly.
1: Uh, you can change them, I think, but I don't think we're really hot enough to be seeing dramatic changes. Yeah. Um, but it it is, I, I would say, you know, coconut oils, um, be, get infused better into the beer. Huh. Um, we've had uh, our old method of pasteurization. We would get um especially the toasted coconut, we would get like the coconut oil, the coconut fat congealed, and it would, it would form a plug yeah. on, on top of the beer that you could see, and it would pour out in chunks. And I'm like, there's no looking at it. It looked like you know pieces of flaked coconut. But I was like, that can't be in the bottle. It wouldn't make it through the machine. Like there's no way for yeah. something that size to get through all of our stuff and into the bottle. It just couldn't have made it. Yeah. And then if you grab it, it's like, oh, it's, it's congealed coconut fat which apparently is horribly unhealthy, Uh, almost entirely uh, high cholesterol, bad cholesterol, saturated fat. It's one of the worst to consume. For health reasons, not uh, poison by any means. So
0: instead, the uh, the process of pasteurization just integrates that into the beer. I think it so. Does. You don't get reminded that it's actually there, nonetheless. Well, yeah, uh, people like. <laughs> I mean, you don't you don't destroy the tiny
1: little particles. What looks like a, right. almost like a starry night kind yeah, of look, yeah. and, and the oils are definitely still there because that head will just die. You're right, but uh, you don't. I have not. We have not seen that that hard plug form again. Yeah, We're using yeah. equally as much coconut or more now. Um, but the, the other side is you just get, uh, I think the cocoa nibs, they incorporate into the beer better. And m- mostly what you, I think you really get is it's premature aging. Yeah. And so you don't, people call it bottle shock or can shock. Um, there's supposedly a sweet spot uh, like two weeks after something is packaged where it's back to homogenized, where yeah. initially it'll be, I guess they say it's stratified. There's a lot of theories. I don't know that anybody's. Got hard science on it, but there's a lot of theories about sure, sure. too too fresh from package, um, especially with the hazy IPAs. I think that has more to do with the crud settling. Yeah, um, yeast with a lot of hop oil on it is pretty bitter and pretty rough. But when you settle that out, it's pretty great. So I think I think what we're seeing in the bottles is you just you get because we can't. That's one thing we don't get because we tunnel pasteurize. Is the draft isn't pasteurized. We keep it cold. We serve it fresh. We have a lot of control over you know, supply chain right, um, right, of that. And it's consumed on site. So if there's a problem with it, you know right away it's not, oh, well, I traded this to my buddy who traded me $200 worth of beer for it. Now he wants $200. I'm like, I got $30 for the bottle. I'll give him $30. That's all I got. I'm sorry he traded $200. Well, he wants you to send it. I'm like, I can't just. We're going to do our best. I'll give you back everything that I got for it but right. Right. It, there, it's there were it, it became an interesting problem where you didn't you sold everything in one place and then you're trying to make it up to people who you know purchased it it was all purchased from yeah. one establishment but they're not even close oh i'm in sweden and i had this beer. i'm like ah, sorry i i don't know what to tell you at this point yeah. send it back go back through your chain that where it came back from and we'll work with you as best we can. Or if, you know, domestically we didn't send anybody beer. Uh, We we can't do that, but we did.
0: You know, I think that's, that's the dangers of any secondary market that anyone operates in, Mm -hmm. whether you're buying Nikes or, uh, you know, there is a limited, I think responsibility on the, on the part of the manufacturer for that kind of anything that's kind of sold and then resold. But
1: I think, I think there's a limited responsibility, but I also think for us, it was, I think there's, more responsibility because of the nature of the product. I feel like there's something to be said when people c- trust what you make and, you, you know, they're putting faith in a premium, premiumly priced product that yeah. you can't – It. I think it, it should be more on you where, uh, you know, there's I, plenty I think, of margin in yeah. there for you to, sure. to handle sure. this better.
0: And I, and I think the the question for you as a producer is: if you stand behind it, are people willing to take that risk in the future on that product? That's been my bet. And if you don't stand behind it, then people may not take that risk, and then they, you may not sell as much of it because it, you know people don't have that kind of faith that you yep. will make good on that. So I've seen it both sure. ways,
1: and I've not really seen the the penalties. Yeah, and maybe I'm just an idiot, but I don't know. I I feel like we've, I, I for me, it's just personally I couldn't do that. Yeah. I, I don't, I couldn't do that to people
0: before, uh, before we close this, uh, what does success look like for you, Doug and cycle brewing?
1: That's a great question. I could have told you six years ago, exactly what it looked like. It'd be pretty close to where we ended up. I feel like we're, um, we've achieved everything that I set out to achieve at this point. Um, and that, and that has actually in the past year to two years kind of led to a like an internal crisis of you know now what I, I don't I'm I still don't have a, a great answer anymore um, uh, it always was achieving what we've achieved we've, um, we have got out of debt we're operating we have you know plenty of time in our leases we've, we've got a lot of good things going and I think now it's sort of coincided with how craft beer has changed to where a success some days to me just looks like survival it is. Are we going to? Um, I feel like maintaining and certainly maintaining the upward trajectory we had for the first three years was not sustainable. Um, plateauing would have been great, but we screwed up beer multiple times in a row, so that really kind of went out the window. So now it's not that not that we're you know we're in a great position financially to where we're not you know at risk of shuttering anytime soon, but at the same time, you know, what is success? Is it just rebuilding what we had maybe um, prior to the issues, which I don't know that that's really on the table. I feel like the consumers, and I I think it's, it's something we're, we're working towards and success is going to be finding and engaging with new consumers because for what built us It probably does go back 10 years to that rare dos keg that went to a tasting group and went out and got highly rated from you know one guy put that in motion and it and it worked out and then we've just steadily built on that but what we the people that helped build that are those consumers and i would say that from that tasting group i think there's one brewery owner one vp at a brewery and the rest probably don't even bother with craft beer anymore like they've they've moved on. Hmm. They've got families, they're older, and the chase and the trades and the checking the the rate box and all that just there's no appeal for them in that anymore and so they don't I feel like the chase for for beer is is shifting dramatically and so for us it's you know now we've sort of run our course with a, it's admittedly a lot of people sure but A lot of them it's their tastes are shifting and what they want and the accessibility that we provided, which was to get away from that secondary value and get away from that secondary chase. It was you know, these beers to me a barrel aged stout with adjuncts in it has mass appeal. You're talking about dessert flavors. People love sweet things. Yeah. Like you make something chocolate and coconut and vanilla, that has mass appeal to for a flavor profile. And I feel like there should be – there's no reason there shouldn't be more accessibility on that end. Now, how do we translate that into bringing in new consumers? And how does that translate from our old business model, which was very much secondary trade hype oriented to not necessarily an average consumer, but somebody who is looking for that special bottle that isn't you know, part of the hardcore craft beer community? And I, I think that's going to be – I'm hoping we can be successful in, in looking in that direction. And I think that's that's really as far as I can tell, about the only direction we have. I don't I don't think I don't think there's there's room unless you wanna, you know, make just two hundred or three hundred bottles of a stout and then release fifty of them and, and let it get out there and, and have that uh, basically it's it's just scarcity. People taste scarcity. Yeah. And I, I think you, you've seen it in bourbon. You see it in wine. And sure. it's certainly true in beer that the, the the scarcity flavor, which, you know, it goes back to the naming of Rare dos. that rare taste is whether it's, you know, something that chemically on your tongue or it's chemically in your brain, it's it's real. You, you, I don't think anybody can deny that. And for a while, there were just so few breweries that it was easy to tap into that scarcity. And now it's it's not. And so, changing from that, I think success will be continuing to for for what we've built. I mean, we've we've got great staff. I, I love that we're providing old school jobs. I mean, we've got full time, salaried employees with retirement accounts and health benefits. It's like, you know, yeah. this, this is the nineteen fifties job. You can work here for a long time, and you know, the company will try to provide because the people that work here are what makes this place work. And so, I, I've I'm Feeling more pride in that, and maintaining that, I think that will be uh, certainly one of the main measures of success. In if you ask me, in another five years,
0: <laughs> well, we'll come back and ask you about that in another five years. Um, if people want to learn more about uh, Cycle, where do they find you?
1: Uh, right now, I'd say the the best way to find us is if you're looking for what we're doing, um, Instagram. We're we're We've had a little a little transition in uh, our social media. Uh, one of our guys left, moved away, jerk. <laughs> no, he was, he, but he was great. He he just intuitively understood social media. And I know that's something that nobody else on staff, myself included, does have that, that natural knack for it. But I think Instagram will keep you informed of what we're doing uh, pretty well. Certainly release details, um, anything special we've got going on tap. Um, but if you're looking for... Uh, more in-depth information, especially about pasteurization, you can read uh, from our website. I cover a lot. There's more. Uh, so if anybody has questions or wants to figure out how to do it without, you know, 150 to 200 thousand dollar investment, there are ways to do this. I mean, the batch uh, bath batch pasteurization method with the mash tun. If you've got a beer with you know, heavy adjuncts, and you don't have confidence, or you just want to add that layer of confidence to that bottle release. It is viable; it does work. You need to spend about four hundred and fifty dollars on this little sensor that goes inside a bottle, and uh, you need to watch your fill heights. But it is a viable method for a one-off beer. It's it's worth looking into. I really think uh, craft brewers would do well. I mean, I don't I don't think there's been. I think the, the bad imperial stouts out there, the uh, harder to enjoy ones have been uh, more fundamental problems, not necessarily uh, flawed yeah. with bacteria, yeah. but beyond that I think, I think there will be more, more breweries will see that, that reckoning come back around and um, it's, it's avoidable. It's avoidable with the equipment you have now if it's one off and if you want to go get deeper with it, uh, by all
0: means. Hashtag no excuses. Uh, Basically, yes. G&D Chillers is the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling. Tavor is the tastiest way to explore the world from the comfort of your home. October Can Seamers is the small scale canning solution. And Clarion Lubricants are the experts that experts trust. If you've enjoyed the podcast, you hope you go to beerandbrewing.com, click on the subscribe button and become a magazine subscriber. To support what we do. We love being able to bring these conversations to you free every week, 52 weeks a year. And we thank you for listening over this past year of the podcast. Doug, thanks for joining me on the last podcast of 2019. The last podcast of this decade. Oh,
1: beat me to the dad joke. <laughs> Got me. Got me. That's fair. So thanks for having me. Yeah.
0: Cheers.